Black Bay Fens. The Fens is another word for a wetland or a swamp. And it was sewage and it was smelly and it was stagnant water and it was a public health nuisance. And what Olmstead and all of the people around him figured out was that if you have moving water, you don't get the sewage backing up. So it was, you know, really these were public works projects. That's why we like to talk about it as landscape as infrastructure. So the first landscape architects truly were city planners. How is this going to work? Right. We need this to work. How is it going to work? Well, hire the landscape architect. Welcome to Elements of Styles, the business podcast that trades in scarce thinking for community, conversation, and ideas in abundance. Each week, I, Mark Styles, sit with professionals and entrepreneurs, both local and global, and learn how they each add value to their communities, their partners, and their teams. Please enjoy. Hey folks, welcome back to Elements of Styles. Today, I am grateful to have Michael Radner of Radner Design Associates. Radner Design Associates our landscape architects. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you, Mark. Great to be here. So help me understand. I know what landscaping is and I know what architects do. What is landscape architecture? So do you know the meaning of the word architecture? I don't think I do. The architecture means, architect means master builder. Ah. And landscape, the word landscape is from the German Landschaft. So we're, we're master builders of the landscape. Master builders. Is that a Latin? architecture how does that become master uh, it's from from the german but don't ask me any further than that all right, gonna, that's all hey I know. listen i didn't know <laughs> listen i've heard some of the best tours in all cities are the architecture tours yeah you have now you have to take the landscape architecture tours i'm in because i love landscaping most of uh my friends know that if i wasn't running the businesses that i'm running i would be running <laughs> a landscaping business i did it all through high school and college i really enjoyed the growth and the green and the sweat and the dirt that goes into landscaping. But tell us about your role as an architect of landscape, a master builder of the landscape. So, you know, the profession, a lot of people know that the profession goes back to Frederick Law Olmsted and Central Park. And, you know, the mid to late 1800s is when the profession was really, I'll say, professionalized um into the kind of product that we put out today it really hasn't changed that much so wait the first landscape architectural design was central park in essence not the first design but the first landscape architect and the man who coined the phrase of or the name of the profession was frederick law olmstead the designer of central park prospect oh. park the emerald necklace so you know, that that is the the sort of the origins of the profession. But of course, things like garden design and city planning goes way back. You can look at Egyptians and see city plans, you know. So so the the idea of this type of land planning goes is ancient, but it was really professionalized in the 1800s with with Olmsted. So um, and, and the sort of misconception that people have is that you know, we do gardens and is landscaping and is a lot of green stuff, but really the origins of the profession, it, it was a city planning movement. And a we think of it as uh, landscape is infrastructure. So that when like the boulevards of Paris were being laid out by the dictators of the time, because there was no democracy, they said, 
all these windy streets that go through Paris, this is not acceptable. We have to plow boulevards straight through the slums and clean it out and make these grand, you know, the the, the Arc de Triomphe and the Eiffel Tower, um, all of these things. So it was really a large scale planning profession. So that when Olmsted had sort of this, the genius of taking that 800 and I think it's 840 acres of the middle of Manhattan and preserving that as a park. I mean, that's a radical, radical thing. You know, imagine imagine trying to carve 848 acres out of a, a large city like that and saying, oh, no, we're not going to develop this. We're going right. to have a place for for people to gather. And it was a very democratic, small d democratic movement to create these spaces for the common person and not for the kings and queens of the royalty to go hunting for deer. You know, it was it was a social, environmental, uh, health-related movement. That's really interesting. It would be really cool to have been part of that that movement. Right? <laughs> Did they have to? take property by eminent domain and and such to to make that work how does they, that they actually did and without getting too far into the weeds of this there was a settlement in the middle of manhattan which was a you know i guess you could call it a village of sorts that was and people were living there and they were um it was an african-american community and a native american community and they basically cleared it out and destroyed what was there and that became that was part of the park so even with all great uh movements like this and great works of of art and architecture there were definitely losers you know as a part of that process so i guess you could you could call it kind of a little bit of gentrification yeah that was Displace, going on displacing yeah. people from their their community that yeah. is disruptive for sure interesting so I was in Central Park recently and it's a fascinating place because you sit back and you think this is in the middle of the city. This is somebody was forward thinking enough to say these people cannot live in a concrete jungle without outdoor space. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it was a, this movement in the late 19th century was a direct response to tenements and slums and horrible sewage conditions. Um, if you if you then look at the emerald necklace here in Boston, that was, you know, the Back Bay Fens. The Fens is another word for a wetland or a swamp. And it was sewage and it was smelly and it was stagnant water and it was a public health nuisance. And what Olmsted and all of the people around him figured out was that if you have moving water, you don't get the sewage backing up. So it was you know, really, these were public works projects. That's why we like to talk about it as landscape as infrastructure. So the first landscape architects truly were city planners. How is this going to work? Right. We need this to work. How is it going to work? Well, hire the landscape architect. Right. Because that's the landscape. Let's talk about the city planning uh, landscape quickly because we will go down sure. the rabbit hole going <laughs> forward I, so i mentioned i was in central park so i was in manhattan and i noticed that they're charging an 18 point something percent tax for parking obviously there's a movement to get rid of cars right we 
enjoyed the entire island. I saw the entire island of Manhattan for the very first time on one of the city bikes, right? So we rented the bike and we rode all through every neighborhood, not only the tourist places, but everywhere through the entire island. What are cities going to look like in 10, 15 years? Great question. I I know what I want them to look like. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about it because people affect change, right? People affect what the future lay, right? Somebody named Olmsted said we need outdoor space in the middle yeah. of Manhattan. And and then all of a sudden, and you know, not to bring up the sore subject of COVID, but well, you, you had this time all of a sudden where people didn't want to be inside with other people. It was really right. important for us to get you know, air moving around us, basically. And all of a sudden, the pop-up restaurants on the sidewalks and closing streets down and all, you know, in my little town that I live here in Norwood, they closed down a little section of street next to the town common. Before COVID, you like, you couldn't dream of proposing something like that. They'd think you're nuts, right? Why would you possibly do that? Well, they closed it down. They put down artificial turf and a couple of picnic tables. Lo and behold, people were going into the shops and restaurants and bringing their takeout and sitting outside and eating. And now they do it every year. Like they'll, they'll close it in the summer so that the cars can drive through and they can plow it. But they just put it out like two weeks ago and closed the street down and it'll be closed probably through Columbus day. I love it. I love it. So we call that a COVID positive on this show, right? So right. what came out, what positives had came so, out of yeah. Oh. So, so the, I'll, I'll, I'll give you another positive is that, um, our percentage of work, and we're going to talk about business, right? Yeah. Our percentage of the types of work that we do, uh, our, our custom residential design increased probably 20 or 30%. Um, we do all kinds of projects, but our, our single family, you know, sort of typical property renovation projects were these people that were working downtown in the back bay and in the business district. And now all of a sudden they were at home and is working out of their home offices and looking at the backyard going, this is terrible. How could, well, how did I let it get this way? Right. So we've had a number of projects where their people are putting in really significant amounts of capital into their outdoor spaces. And, well, it makes uh, sense. I mean, we're, we do a lot of real estate here and, you know, we realize that people are going to be where they want to be versus where they have to be. And there's certain areas uh, that are benefiting by that, you know, whether there's water or other resources or, or anything that's beautiful with space, people are realizing that things are different and I don't need to go into the office every day, which means I don't need to live in the city really close to other people right. let's talk about the city real quick and then we'll yeah i want to i want to get back to that because you know i started there and now we talked about backyards so and there's a lot of stuff in between there obviously. i told you we'd so, go to, down a couple of rabbit holes yeah <laughs> so um you know the question of cities uh you know obviously covid changed everything it's changes the whole economy of downtowns certain downtown areas you know the neighborhoods are doing great yeah if you get out, if we're talking about just Boston, you get out of the the core, you know, financial district and you get out to Roslindale and West Roxbury and Jamaica Plain and all these other places and all throughout Cambridge, those neighborhoods, those retail establishments, they're doing quite well because now everybody that lives there is working there. Right. And now I can go out to lunch from my house 
house, yeah. you know, and either walk or drive to the local eatery. So while all of those downtown businesses are suffering right now, um, you know, the neighborhoods where people actually live and there's actually more mixed use, they're doing quite well. So, you know, what does the city look like in the future? I, <laughs> I wish I could answer the question. I mean, we, we certainly have a lot of challenges and I'll bring up climate change and sea level rise, um, the increase of natural disasters in intensity and frequency um, and all of the things that come with it. And, you know, we have, we have some severe challenges. So again, I'll go back to that term of green infrastructure where um, city planners and, and other people are turning to our profession to help solve these problems of, you know, what happens when it floods, where does the water go? You know, the design community is now being heard and, and coming together and creating, doing some really creative solutions on how to accommodate sea level rise and, and everything that comes with it. Well, that's really interesting because they're coming full circle, right? Who planned the city in the first place, but the landscape architects, where that got diluted, who knows? Probably nepotism, right? Well, Johnny's <laughs> kid's going to be the city planner now. Well, Johnny's kid doesn't know anything about landscape design or water flow or name whatever fill in the blank you want. So it's interesting that they're coming back to you for advice that they were seeking in the beginning. Yeah. Well, I, a quick aside, I, I teach uh, a course called Professional Practice for Landscape Architects at the Boston Architectural College. And this is one of the first lectures is about the history of this profession and how we started as a city, well, what I'll call the City Beautiful Movement, which was just what I described earlier, introduction of parks, parkways, green spaces, and so forth. Um, access to natural resources. And um, and then we've gone through all of these different sort of phases and, and eras of landscape design. And we were doing like large estates. I don't mean we, me personally, right. no, no. <laughs> um, large estates. And then it was corporate campuses. And we have really come full circle right now with, you know, when cities kind of became hot again, sort of in the late 80s and early 90s and everybody was kind of like you know moving downtown and there was you look at place like san francisco and now austin where you have this brain concentration of brain power and they all want to be together yeah in these places and cities got really a lot of renewed attention and people started to move downtown again so it became you know we kind of became important again yeah in the city planning movement so so how does one become a landscape architect? You mentioned that you teach in an architecture school. Is that the only pathway? So the typical pathway is the, is you have to go to college. Right. So there are bachelor's degrees in landscape architecture, uh, and there are master's degrees in landscape architecture. I have a master's degree. My, my undergrad is in biology. I was a yeah. science guy. So I came at it from that angle where I was into uh, ecological science and design and and um, uh, ended up going back in school and getting a design degree, which is a whole other story. I can bend your ear it. on that for a while. <laughs> but, but it's representative in that um, people, uh, because it's, uh, everybody's heard of architecture, right? But not as many people have heard of uh landscape architecture the architecture profession is 
literally 10 times the size of landscape architecture. Um, so, so, um, so you would, so there is a, there is a, a four and a five year degree. And then, um, and, and it's very interesting. There are a number of programs around the country and they're typically housed with either an engineering school or an architecture school, or in my case, a forestry school. I was in the forestry school. Oh, cool. Interestingly, one of the yeah. oldest programs in the country in Syracuse, and we were in the school of environmental science. So there's different ways to do it. Now, you don't necessarily have to go to college. You can be an apprentice. Yeah. You can come out of a landscape design program, which is you know, could be a community college or a night school type thing. And then you would have to apprentice for a number of years under a licensed landscape architect, which brings up another point, which like architecture, where you have to have a license, you take an exam and get a license. Um, so do landscape architects. We're just as, as rigorous in our training and our uh, credentials, because we're seen as um, being important to health, safety, and welfare. Without a doubt, right? I mean, yeah. so, if anyone has attempted to figure out the flow of water alone <laughs> requires a degree, right? I mean, that is really challenging, but I never really thought of the the city planning as as landscape architecture. It makes perfect sense, but if you're not thinking that way, then it escapes you. But Again, for the city you had mentioned, I know what I would like it to look like. What would you like it to look like in 10 years? What does the city look like? A city, for example. Um, I'll, I'll make two points. Okay. One is that I think we need to get rid of this idea of that there's a central business district. Got it. And then everything else, you know, I talked about neighborhoods before. Yeah. I think more cities need to look like neighborhoods. Boston is a great has a great urban texture because it's mostly neighborhoods. There's not a lot of financial district real estate. You know, there's not a lot of, you know, that that acreage downtown is not a huge part of the city. So, you know, I think that we need to become more mixed use. I think it's a I think it's I think people want to work and live and work and live and play and eat and recreate close to their homes. We've seen that in the past three years. Nobody wants to go in anymore. <laughs> Nobody wants to go in the office anymore. And that eliminates a car or two. It does take a car out off the road, but why is the traffic so bad now? I I can't answer that question. Right. So, you know, I would say more mixed use, um, less cars, more people. So larger sidewalks, more bikes, more walking, more trails, more parks, maybe right. 30%. Yeah. I mean, well, I, I don't want, I don't hesitate to put a number on it, but uh, yeah, I mean, it, see, like you discovered with Manhattan cities are best experienced at a slower rate of speed without a roof and a walls around yeah. you. I mean, if you really want to get to know a city, walk, get out and walk. Right. If, or ride if, the bike. If you're physically able to, yeah. Which, by the way, I thought would be somewhat dangerous, but the residents, the inhabitants of Manhattan are completely embracing the bicycle. Sure. Right? The bike rides with the traffic. 
They yield, you know, at first, I'm sure it was really clunky. I'm sure there was a lot of distrust and, and, and people being upset with one another. But right now, <laughs> as of whatever it was two weekends ago that I was there, it was, I felt completely at ease riding down the middle of Broadway, the middle wow. of Avenue of the Americas, the middle That's of awesome. Park Avenue, and then into the park and all around and could turn my head and look around and see this amazing city. I've never seen it like that. Being yeah. from Boston, I always had a very negative outlook on the city, quote unquote, right? Because of prejudgments, right? We're from Boston. New York's gross. It's dangerous. It's, <laughs> you know, they cheat. They're terrible people. They're this, that, and the other thing, right? But that could continue to resonate if I'm stuck in a building and there is all I see is trash and this and that. But then I get out of the Times Square and I'm riding through Soho and I'm riding down to the Freedom Tower and I'm riding through Upper West Side and right. I'm seeing the city in a way that wasn't described to me. So 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 here's my my deep, dark secret. Yeah is that I'm originally from New York. So I'm technically, I guess I'm a New Yorker. Now I've been here since the nineties. So I'm a little bit almost homegrown, but uh, so I, but my first jobs were down in that area. And I worked for a year in Manhattan in downtown. Uh, it was near Washington square park. And oh, so I, I trained it into the city every day. And even though I had grown up in that area, I was from the suburbs. I'm a suburban kid. Yeah. And I hadn't really spent that much time in the city. But when I when you're there every day and you walk, you walk around, you walk from the train to get to your office, you walk out to get lunch, you on a nice spring day, you walk down to Washington Square Park and watch the the circus, the three ring circus yeah. that's going on there. And you, what you start to understand is that these are neighborhoods. This is Manhattan is not a big, scary place when you are spend time in an area and are on on your feet and walking around there. And you get to know the guy who's selling you uh, soft drinks, you know, in the drugstore or, you know, any number of places where you start to see the same people over and over again. And then all of a sudden you're in your, you're in your little zone, your little, um, I don't want to call it a bubble, but, you know, you get familiar with the place and it's not a big scary city anymore. It's just your neighborhood. Yeah. I love that. I love that. So what does Radner Design Associates focus their practice on? So we're we're a general practice landscape architecture firm. So our even after I've spoken about all of this big city planning stuff, we 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 don't do that actually. Right. We're a, we're a small office. Uh, we're quite honestly we're a two person office with two two registered landscape architects, uh, myself and my associate, and um, we do site level planning and design, which is to say, you know, that can be anything from a a garden in somebody's backyard or a small commercial development up to um, sort of larger commercial developments that could be corporate, a corporate campus or a multifamily project. So that's kind of the size of our, that's kind of the areas that we target is, is might be 10,000 square feet of space to 30 or 40 acres. Wow. So we don't we don't really get bigger than that. Um, Thirty or forty acres is pretty big. What did you say Central Park is? Eight hundred. One hundred forty. Yeah, eight hundred yeah. acres. That 
gives you the ability to do some pretty big projects. How early on in the conversations and the planning are you and your team with the real estate developer? That's a that's a really great question because it's our it's our goal always to get involved as early as possible. Um, and this is not to pat ourselves on the back too much, but we feel like we can avoid uh, people to from making mistakes in their planning by including us early on. Makes sense. Um, and I could tell you a whole, you know, a bunch of war stories about that. Sure. About how when you know we 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 do tend to come in sometimes a little bit late, and I'll say something like, "Have you thought about putting the building?" you know, turning the building this way or moving it over here. And the team will go, that's a really good idea. And all of a sudden they're changing all of the plans. So, so we do like to be involved early, but, you know, typically what happens, you know, we're on, we're on in the beginning of the project. I think, you know, the, the um, visibility of the profession and the, our, our notoriety, I guess, has grown within the bounds of my career, I started in 1990 and, you know, plenty of people now have worked with landscape architects or at least know, kind of know what we do. And so if I, that's helped us quite a lot. And if the real estate developer doesn't necessarily know, certainly the people that they start hiring are going to say, well, what are we doing about landscape? And when the developer says, well, aren't you doing that to the site developer or right. you, the engineer, right? So that's where the relationships come in. So who's part of that table? If In an ideal yeah. situation, real estate developer comes in and says, I have this 22 acre parcel. I want to do a mixed use concept with smart planning, common sense housing, relatively near a, a commuter area, who's sitting at that we like those we like those clients yes and i well i think and the the projects themselves the concepts themselves the strategies are brilliant like you said people want to live work play have right. the efficiencies right there but at that initial first kind of mind share right who are the professionals that are on so, that at the table right so our so our partners around the table will be the architect mm -hmm. uh, for the structure for the buildings yeah. and the civil engineer who, and I'll talk about our relationship with both of these professions, but especially the civil engineering, we have a very, very hand in glove type of yeah. relationship with that profession. Um, and then to a lesser degree, we work with uh, traffic consultants, uh, wetlands consultants, and any type of environmental, if there's, you know, dirty sites, they might have a, a LSP, which is a licensed site professional. And then there's geotechnical and soils people. So those to a little bit of a lesser degree, but really the, the, aside from the client or the developer, uh, the architect and the civil engineer, and I don't, I don't want to leave out the attorneys. Well, the like, land use attorneys, the land important. use attorneys is these people are super important. Um, because as everybody knows, with our permitting environment, especially in Massachusetts, 350 whatever towns and cities, and each has their own zoning regulations, wetland regulations, master planning, city planning, you know, whatever they have and their permitting processes are all 
you know, a little bit slightly different. Yeah. If you don't have that local attorney that can help guide you through the process, you're going to be in trouble. Yeah. So that person is really important. Oh, so who I, typically oh. who typically runs point? Who's the quarterback of the team typically? If it's well, not the developer, right? The developer has their you know desire to lead, but who really kind of is it different on each deal? Uh, yes. Yeah. So in an ideal world, it is the developer. Yeah. It's 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 their project. Now there's. There's a. I've worked with people that are very, very proactive, and I have longtime clients that call me before they've called any other consultant. Yeah. Before the architect, before the engineer, uh, before the surveyor, and they'll come to me and say, you know, what, like, how many units of housing can I fit on this property? Yeah. So that's when our planning we put on our planning hat. And you're digging and, into the bylaws. And we right? do due, due diligence to see what basically the carrying capacity of the land. What can we do here? Um, so the best real estate developers know, kind of know, I'm not saying the best real estate developers always hire landscape architects, but they they uh they they understand what has to go into the planning and the due diligence of these sites, and they will provide clear and concise direction to their team on who's doing what. So they are they are definitely the general on that and um but you know some are a little less experienced or, or they you know just aren't as good at that in which case you might have the architect come in and be Got kind it. of be the lead on that or the civil engineer so but that's an interesting point you bring up so before you even look at zoning and what the density requirements are uh, uh let's call that person a smart developer is going to come to the landscape architect to determine how much load they can put on that. Like what are the factors involved in that soil density? Yeah. I mean, the, the, ideally they would come to this team of architect, yeah. civil engineer and landscape architect. Yeah. That's kind of like the core thing. The architect understands the building, the engineer under, understands a lot of the, the, um, you know, it's whether it's stormwater or soils or things like that. And then the landscape architect, you know, can kind of help. You know, I like to think that we're kind of can help make coalesce that into into yeah. a nice plan. Yeah. Got it. <laughs> um, so because we look at, you know, we're looking at drainage and water flow along with the civil engineer. Um, how much impervious surface are we creating and how is that handled? How does the parking and circulation work? How does the pedestrian circulation work? How do the buildings relate to each other? Those are the those are the things that I look at. So um, impervious pervious has come a long way in the last yeah. decade too, right? The yeah. awareness of water flow and all. So talk about that for a second. What are what are people starting to do to to better handle that? Well, the the nature of the stormwater uh, regulations have evolved over the years. So that the requirements are becoming more stringent in you know in in old school engineering when you're talking about stormwater and how to handle the runoff and the flow it used to be you know put it in a hole in the ground and into a an inlet and a catch basin and pipe it away and pipe it off the site down the road it goes right but now and then it became well you because they had downstream flooding obviously the more pavement you add the more roof area that you add, the more you're impacting your neighbor that's downstream. So then it became, 
we have to take all of that runoff and we have to put it in a hole, a big pit in the ground. I used to call them detention basins. Yeah. And then let that runoff slowly percolate out of the site and then down the road and into a so drain slowing system. it down, basically. Slowing it down, exactly, to mitigate that flooding. And now it's basically we're looking to infiltrate stormwater wherever we possibly can. Now, when I say infiltrate, that means that the the outlet of those uh, structures, those stormwater infiltration basins, if you want to get technical, yeah. uh, is just for an overflow. We want to infiltrate into the ground and into the groundwater as much as humanly possible. And let it disperse equally. And let it go into the ground and, and yeah, and disperse underground. So that's when we start to get into things like constructed wetlands, uh, bioretention basins, which is a little bit different. There's a whole, Massachusetts has a whole stormwater handbook, which I don't pretend to be an expert on. I will leave that to the civil engineers, but there's different ways to infiltrate that water. And it has a lot to do with almost everything to do with the soil conditions under the ground. Some so places you can't, you can't infiltrate. A lot less pavement. Yeah, the, the zoning bylaws kind of dictate how much, you know, a lot of these are parking lots. Now, right. the other the other kind of neat thing that's happened lately is that it used to be, um, do you have enough parking? And now it's almost like flipped around and said, um, do you need all that parking? Interesting. That's what... <laughs> That's what the the cities the cities are going and like you know Boston you're you're doing, you know there there are certain places where you can build without parking, Cambridge too, because there's a future not far away that we're going to reduce the amount of cars and oh look at this there's an envi environmental benefit as well right look right. at that yeah is there new technology to make it easier for uh, snow plowing and cleaning that will also affect the disbursement of the water or is it still old school status quo materials um you know i think the probably the the biggest innovation in the last 20 years has been permeable paving yeah which allows the water to infiltrate directly into the ground below the pavement rather than conveying it to a structure and then having it infiltrate and so, how much how effective has that been? Is it is it fully? It's it's probably not as widespread as I think it should be. Is it more expensive? It's more expensive. You need to construct a, a special base yeah. for that under the pavement. In New England, we have you know winter, so right. we get sand and grit and stuff when they're plowing. So the the gaps or the pores or the joints of the pavement can get clogged a little bit more easily. So it's more maintenance to it. So it's kind of, we use it in, in certain areas. Um, they tend to be more pedestrian because that doesn't get plowed with a plow and it doesn't have tires going over it and road grit and stuff like that. So, but, you know, I think a lot of the innovation and in stormwater management has become with, with, just uh, trying to infiltrate different ways, natural, natural ways. You know, we, we've done projects where you might normally see a curb along a road and they take the curb out so that the water can just run off into a ditch or a swale. And they call it, they give it a nice name called country drainage. 
country drainage. Yeah. <laughs> so that you know you don't have as many structures and you're sort of dispersing the war the water over larger areas so that it can infiltrate. That's really interesting. So we're making advancements and and it's thanks to our folks in the landscape architecture profession. So let me ask you this, Michael. Somebody, a real estate developer preferably finds you or or reaches back to you and brings you into the team to create something special, create a vision that they have and it goes exactly the way they want. And they say, Michael, how can I help you? And you say, you know what? Write a testimonial for me. What would that sound like? Um, I, I like to think of ourselves, here, here's the way that I, I would like our clients to think of us. Yes, that's what we want. As we, we are, and you'll find this on our website, we are, <laughs> we're trusted partners. I want to be a partner with you in your, you know, you're trying to make money. I get that. You know, I want to make profit too. But along the way, let's have, let's be of a similar mind. You know, our goals are the same. We want to have a great project. We want a great, you know, I want to be able to be proud to put my name on this. And so do you. So I, I encourage my clients to share as much of their vision and their process and, and, um, and so forth with us so that we understand, um, you know, break down the silos. Yes. You know, view me as your partner in this. And then so that I can understand where you're coming from. Um, and then we can get to the finish line at the same, you know, at the same time. I love that. Don't don't treat me like a vendor because there's going to be obstacles in the way. Treat right. me like a partner and we're going to win together. There you go. I love it. I love it. All right. So you're pushing your comfort zone a little bit with the podcast. I know this isn't a typical thing that's done at Radner Design and Associates. But one of the things I love about scaring yourself every day or pushing it out, doing some early adopting kind of things is karaoke. And the goal is, is that we're going to get our guests together, including Nicole, who was kind enough to suggest you come on and share your story with us, which was a great episode. Nicole is a wonderful human being. She's fantastic. But you're up next on the microphone. What are you singing, Michael? All right. So um, I have never sung karaoke in my life. I love it. That doesn't mean I don't sing. I so here's my, other, here's my other deep, dark, dark secret. I sing in an all-male acapella group. Cool. Uh, there's, there's seven of us, and there's seven men, and they all kind of look like me in terms of the age and their lack of hair. And so, for, those, for those listening, I will say he's a handsome, handsome fellow. <laughs> so handsome that we were on a TV show Ooh. on on GBH called Sing That Thing. Cool. And we went on two years in a row. This was pre-pandemic, of course. Where So this was local WGBH in their beautiful studio in, yeah. in Brighton. And... Um, it's a singing competition where they have choral groups and large and small, and they come in and and we never made it past the first round, but that's okay. Yeah. Um, this is kind of like my this is my therapy. This is my golf. Is getting together with my friends every Monday night and and singing um, a cappella tunes. So we do close harmony singing. 
So, so I'm not going to answer what the favorite song is in karaoke because I don't do that. It wasn't a question for favorite. So now you're in a situation though, Michael, and I know you've never okay. done it. And I know you're going to blow the doors off of everyone who's there. You got to sing it. The guns against your head. What are you going to grab and sing to that crowd? Uh, the song that I've been singing since college is my girl by the Temptations. I love it. Can you give us a note? No, I'm not going to do Come that. Come on. <laughs> Come on. How many people on this podcast actually sing? Uh, I've had <laughs> under five. Out of well, then I got to do it. You're going to be episode number 120 something. I uh -huh. think. And I've been asking this since like episode number three, I think. Wow. And about five. Belting, and give, they just gonna, felt the. the I'm going to give you one line. Do it. I got sunshine. On a cloudy day. There you go. That was amazing. It gave me Number chills. Number six. Dude. That gave me chills. <laughs> I can't wait to meet you in person. Awesome. So the most important question of them all. Uh, somebody is listening to this. Their friend forwarded it to them because they're getting ready to develop something beautiful. And they say, oh, you got to hear this guy. Like, this is who I would trust if I were you at this point in time. How do they get in touch with you? Radnerdesign.com. Go to the website. So, you know, pretty easy, right? Radner Design Associates. So we're at radnerdesign.com. You can go and fill out a form there and, and that'll email. I'll get the email. Or you can email me at mradner at radnerdesign.com. I love it. Probably love the it. best way. And love if it. you want to hear a cappella, the name of the group is Tonehenge. Tonehenge Rocks. So if you go to Facebook and look up Tonehenge and you'll find us. Thomas, you I know you heard that. So folks, uh, Thomas is going to put that in the show notes. So if you're on that treadmill or you're <laughs> weed whack in that yard or you're planting some plants while listening to Michael, press right through. And now you've got Tonehenge. Oh, that's a creep. <laughs> name. Thank so you. And as far as as far as our, our sort of target right now, you know, our best clients. Yeah, we're really looking for landowners landowners who want to do something well land, whether that be a, a company a corporation an institution got it a hospital a homeowner people that are are controlling land and and want or need to do something with it that's really what we're trying to um, expand right now towns and cities too now we do public parks also do you hear we that even talk about that do you hear that folks share it share it with everyone this guy's something special. Michael, thank you so much You're too for sharing kind. your story. <laughs> Thanks very much. Folks, this has been another exciting episode of Elements of Styles. If you enjoyed this, let us know. If you know somebody who could work with Michael, whether it's a developer or a partner in the civil engineer space, send this to them so they can get to know Michael. Appreciate you, folks. Thank you, and see you next week. Hey, thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe on your platform of choice for a new episode each week and share this with everyone and anyone. If you have any questions or comments or have an idea for another guest, feel free to shoot me an email at mstyles at styles-law.com. That's M-S-T-I-L-E-S at styles-law.com. And if you are a real estate professional, be sure to check us out on our private exclusive Facebook page, The Real Estate School at 892 for content and Massachusetts continuing education opportunities. Be well, folks. This podcast is being provided for informational purposes only. 
The podcast is not a comprehensive overview of the subject and is not intended to provide legal or financial advice or an endorsement of any product or business. The views expressed by podcast guests are their own and their appearance on the podcast does not imply any endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Please seek legal, financial, or tax advice before taking any action on the matters or products discussed herein.